You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. This morning, Matthew chapter 22 is where we are. And we're looking at verses 34 through 40, but we're going to read down to verse 46. Because this forms one encounter, but we're going to look at it on two Sundays. Matthew 22, beginning with verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a scholar of the law, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your grace to us in Christ, the preeminent grace that we have known from your hand is our salvation. You've made us your own. You've forgiven us all our sins. You've granted to us as a gift the righteousness that we need to stand before you completely accepted. It's in Christ and it's for forever. You've made us new men and women. You've given us new hearts. You've set us free from the tyranny of sin and Satan, taken us from the domain of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of your Son, the kingdom of light and life. Even as we have sung about this morning, our Savior lives. Our shelter is alive. Even now interceding for us at your right hand. Even as your Spirit intercedes as we pray, helping us when we don't know exactly what we should pray for. In every way we can imagine, you have taken care of us from beginning to end. And then we think about all your blessings to us as a church. We think about the blessings of how you've taken care of us financially and with facilities and the health and energy you give us to serve you and all the ways, Lord, that you've shown your grace and mercy and kindness and goodness and love to us. Individually, but as a church, you've done this. And we give you praise and thanks. As we turn our attention to our Savior this morning, looking at how you've set him before us in your perfect word, May we feast on Him. May our souls be satisfied in Him. May we be encouraged by Him. And Lord, would You fan to flame 
a holy zeal in us to live for you with all that we are, even as we're commanded to love you with all that we are. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every sin that people commit is an attack on God in more than one way. Every sin that people commit is an attack on God from the standpoint of holiness. Sin is unrighteousness. There is no unrighteousness in God. There is no darkness in God. God's commands are what they are because God is who He is. His law, His commands, His statutes are expressions of, manifestations of His character, His attributes, His nature. So that when we find His commands disagreeable to us, when we transgress, when we violate those commands, act in defiance of those commands, in reality what we're doing is expressing the fact that we're at odds with who He is. His commands reflect who He is. If His commands are disagreeable to us, it's because who He is is disagreeable to us. So that every sin that men commit is an attack on God Himself, on His character, His nature, His attributes. Sin is unrighteousness. This is why lost man is described as a hater of God. He doesn't just hate God's standards. That hatred of God's standards reflects his hatred of God. Romans 1.30, describing lost humanity, describes men this way, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind... Here's the beautiful thing, the wonderful thing about what God has done in our case. When we sin as believers, it is true we're acting in a way that is hostile to God's commands, therefore hostile to who He is. But at the same time, we are living in a way hostile to who we are now. This is why sin grieves us. The flesh is still present. We battle with sin in so many different ways. But at the core, God has made us new men and women. We desire to please God. And so we find ourselves at odds with who we are as we commit sins. But not the lost man. The lost man is simply acting in accordance with his or her nature. And we were born into this world since the fall of Adam, haters of God. Hostile in mind. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? We were enemies of God. Now we've been reconciled to God. But in every sin that we commit, there's something else. There is, at the same time, ungratefulness. Sin is not just unholiness, it's ungratefulness. It is not being thankful for how kind God is to humanity in His sin. Sin refuses to acknowledge God. Sin refuses to acknowledge God's mercy to the sinner. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is what lost humanity does. He takes God's 
gifts that are explained by grace and mercy. I mean, God's common grace is on display in this world towards sinners every day. He takes these gifts of God's grace and mercy and weaponizes those gifts against the giver. Every breath that we take, every way that our existence is maintained has come to us from the hand of God, even when men don't acknowledge that. So the mind that man uses to argue against God has been given to him by God. Not, not, not its sinful expression, but the fact that you can think and reason. That's a gift from God. It's only maintained by the hand of God. And so here is man taking the mind that God has given him as a gift and then using it like a weapon against the God who's given him the ability to think. The powers of expression that we have, whether the spoken word or the written word, think about how many words have been spoken by ungrateful sinners against God. Words from their mouths, words from their pens, words from their computer against God, and yet those powers of expression are granted by God, sustained by God. The health and energy that mankind uses to argue against God and oppose God, the very health and energy that fuels their opposition has been granted by God, sustained by God. The time that man wastes living in a way that defies God is one more moment existing outside of hell, a hell that he deserves. And so God is giving him one more moment, one more opportunity for repentance. And he takes that opportunity for repentance and turns it into an opportunity to express his hostility toward his Creator. Sin is unholy. Sin is ungrateful. Every sin that man commits is an attack on God's Holiness and an attack on God's kindness and goodness. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. How many times in the Word of God are these two aspects of sin brought together in a scene in which both are tremendously magnified? I mean, in a scene where you see man's hostility toward God on display, but in that very same scene, God's mercy and kindness and patience on display. I think about the cross of Christ. The supreme expression of man's hostility toward God as He crucifies the Lord of glory, His Creator, His only Savior, murders from the human standpoint, from the responsibility of man's standpoint, murders the Savior. And yet there is the Savior hanging on that cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Man's attack on God's holiness, doubly horrific. 
Because at the very moment he is attacking God's holiness, God's mercy is on display. Doubly responsible. Well, we come to a scene like that in our verses. The hostility of the religious leaders of the Jews is still on display in a way that's just glaring, and yet we'll see before we're done this morning that this expression of hostility is turned by Jesus into an invitation of mercy. His mercy is on display even as their hostility is on display. And I'll explain as we move forward in our verses. The first thing I want you to see this morning is the concern of the Pharisees. Remember, they questioned the authority of Jesus. Jesus gave three parables that expressed His authority. He assesses them. He judges them. He warns them. He announces a new day of mercy for outsiders, namely Gentiles. He answers their challenge of His authority with three parables that teach on His authority. Then you find three attempts on their part to entrap Him in His words. And this is the third attempt to entrap Him by His words. This is arising out of concern. Verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, remember what we saw last week? They come asking Him about the resurrection. They give this ridiculous example of the law regarding the marriage of a brother-in-law when a son has died without offspring. And they talk about a woman who's had seven brothers and they all died and then she died. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus answers that ridiculous challenge and puts them in their place. Well, the Pharisees hear about this. That Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so they gathered themselves together. You have to know that what they heard about regarding His conversation with the Sadducees was probably produced a mixed reaction in their hearts. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. And so to hear that Jesus put the Sadducees in their place on that question likely delighted their hearts on some level. And yet they are still troubled because they realize Jesus is presenting them a real problem. With every challenge and every answer, His esteem in the eyes of the crowds grows. As they say on one occasion, if we let Him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in Him. And we're going to lose our place. So there's a real concern growing, which leads to an impromptu meeting Let's put our heads together. Matthew tells us they did this. They gathered themselves together. Let's put our heads together and, and let's give Him our supreme test. Let's give Him our very best question. This is our second point this morning. The concern of the Pharisees is our first point. Second, the collective test from the Pharisees. Verse 35-36, And one of them, a scholar of the law, asked him a question testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? I say a collective test, as I said, because they've gathered themselves together. This is what they've come up with. This is the result of their gathering. It's a different test than their first one. Their first test, you'll remember, they, they sent disciples of theirs along with the Herodians, and it was a political question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, that one didn't work, so now they're attacking him on the theological level. Let's, let's give him a theological question. What's interesting is they, they put someone forward as their representative who is unique. One of them, a scholar of the law. 
Matthew uses a word here he doesn't use anywhere else in his account. Namakas is the word. Nomas, law. Namakas, a law expert. It's different than, than the two other times he talks about scribes. Grammatus is the word he uses there. Here he uses a different word. Why does he use a different word? Maybe just variety. There may be no significance in it. But it might be that the reason why he uses this word is because out of the scribes, out of those men who are acknowledged as experts in the law, this guy is really known as an expert in the law. Not only are we going to give him our best question, we're going to put forward our best representative. We all know about this to some degree. We know people who are knowledgeable in the Word of God, and then we know people that we consider to be scholars. I mean, this is their wheelhouse. This is their area of expertise. This is what they really know even better than really knowledgeable people. They know it even better than that. This is an expert in this particular area. Well, this man appears to have been that guy. But he's unique in another way. He doesn't really represent the antagonism that the Pharisees as a group are known for toward Jesus. We've seen it again and again in our study of Matthew. These men hate the Lord Jesus. This man, however, seems to be different. Now, he belongs to the group. Notice verse 35, and one of them. So he's a Pharisee, a scholar of the law, asks him the question. He's one of them, and yet like Nicodemus was, he seems to be different. In fact, if Matthew had not included the words testing him at the end of verse 35, the question is respectful. It would just seem like an honest question about the law. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? But Matthew tells us this was a test. Mark gives us additional information. Listen to Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Next verse, listen. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that He is one, and there is no other besides Him, and to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's insightful. For a Jew of his day, knowing as we do how the system had apostatized, that's insightful. And in fact, Jesus acknowledged it was insightful. Listen to what our Lord said to him. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So this is their best question sent by their best representative. And it appears that God is doing something in this man's heart. He is different from them with respect to his attitudes. William Hendrickson commented, having learned from many previous passages how very hostile the Pharisees and scribes were toward Jesus and how He in turn condemns them. 
a fact of which we shall be reminded seven times over in chapter 23, we find it surprising that this not unfriendly, shall we say noble, law expert or scribe was chosen to represent the Pharisees in testing Jesus. Was it because they did not really know this man? Was he hostile at first, and did he become deeply impressed by Christ's answer so that he then and there experienced a change of mind toward this teacher? Or does the reason for the Pharisees' selection of this man to represent them lie even deeper? They did indeed know him to be, know him rather thoroughly and sent him thinking him Jesus will not suspect, and we may still be able to trip up our enemy because of the answer he will give. We do not know, and we don't know. What we do know is that this man was different. What we also know is that the very attempt to entrap Jesus represented high-handed wickedness. Using the law of God in your attempt to violate the law of God. This is deception at work. This is a question being given to Jesus with destruction lying behind it. That's the desire of the question. That violates the law of God. You're seeking to entrap an enemy through lies, a lying motive. And yet you're using the law of God to do it, which is the greatest commandment in the law. What high-handed wickedness is this? Now, their question has to do with importance, emphasis, weight. When they ask which one is the greatest commandment, they're asking which one would you rank first, Jesus? How is this a test? Because this is the sort of thing they debated about. Over 600 commandments they had numbered. Some commanding us things to do, some commanding us things not to do. Some having to do with weightier matters, some having to do with lighter matters. They would have believed every command of God was to be obeyed. You can't disobey any of them. However, we can acknowledge that some are weightier than others. I mean, the command not to murder certainly is weightier than the command regarding the tithe. In fact, Jesus acknowledged that, didn't He? Matthew 5, 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, we'll see this next chapter, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. R.C. Sproul said this, he said, The rabbis had cataloged all the laws of the Old Testament and counted them, coming up with a final tally of 613. They believed that there was a distinction between commandments that were light and weighty, and they spent endless hours discussing which commandments fit into which categories. This lawyer asked Jesus to give his opinion as to which of all the commandments was the most weighty, obviously hoping he would say something that the Pharisees could contradict with their supposedly extensive legal knowledge, perhaps impressing and influencing the people. Of course, this whole discussion about which commandment was the most important was thoroughly academic and scholarly, having little or nothing to do with faithful obedience to the law. I find it highly ironic that this one who was supposed to be an expert on the law of God was confronting the only person in all of human history who had kept all 613 of God's commandments. By comparison, this expert in the law was thoroughly lawless. Close quote. 
good insight by Sproul, isn't it? You have lawless men questioning the only one who's ever, who gave the law and only the only one who's ever perfectly fulfilled it, asking him to test him. Teacher, which one would you put at the head? Which one would you rank first? And they think regardless of how Jesus answers, he's going to have trouble. He's going to have trouble. So the concern of the Pharisees leads to the collective test from the Pharisees. Third thing we see, the commands that sum up the whole of Scripture. The commands that sum up the whole of Scripture. Jesus answers, verse 37, and He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophet. And before we think about how Christ's answer is functioning in this encounter, I think it's helpful and needful for us just to take into our hearts the fact that those two commandments sum up the whole of the Word of God. I mean, these two commandments are still in force. They still stand. They still inform us and instruct us. We're to be living our lives right now with these two commandments in our, in our minds, these com two commandments before our spiritual vision. Jesus is God in human flesh. This is the answer of God. You're asking God about His Word. And He is giving you the answer. The divine lawgiver is telling you how to think about His law. And this is, as Sproul said, the perfect law keeper. Telling you how you keep the law, how you walk in the Word of God, how you actually fulfill the commandments of God. Which command is the greatest? Which one sums up all the others and is necessary for, for obedience if we're to obey anything? Well, Jesus gives them Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Maybe they expected Him to go to the Ten Commandments. He didn't. Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord with all that you are. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 10, 12 says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Even as the statutes are being given to Israel, the emphasis is on loving God with all that you are, serving Him with all your life, you see? And people try to break this down into the components that Jesus expressed, that the law of God expressed, your mind, your soul, all the rest. And there's no doubt there's some value in that. But the fact is what the emphasis is on is this. Love God with all you are. With all that you are. The Lord is to be preeminent in our motives and our ambitions. Do you desire Him more than you desire anything else in life? Do you, do you desire to please Him more than you desire anything else in life? What drives your life? What are the motives standing behind your, your life every day? I love that song that we sang this morning about knowing the Lord in a way that satisfies us before our, our day is done. 
As I was singing that this morning, I'm thinking about not just this day, I'm thinking about the day of my existence. Lord, work in my life in such a way that I don't waste my days. That I might present to you, as Moses wrote, a, a heart of wisdom. Teach us, Lord, to number our days. Well, the, the way you number your days rightly is to understand you exist for God. He made you for Himself. Your life is to be aimed in every respect at the glory of God. I exist for you, to live for you, to love you, to serve you, to please you. I exist for you and every part of who I am and everything I put my hand to. Preeminent in all of it is your glory. That's how we're meant to live. Preeminent in our affections. I mean, what we delight in. What we take joy in. Can you truthfully say that you're loving the Lord in such a way that your joys, your affections, your delights are focused on Him? They're explained by Him. What you desire, you desire to please Him. Or are you living your life according to the lust of the flesh? Lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the lust of the flesh, this is what characterizes lost humanity. But a desire to please God is what characterizes saved humanity. The Lord preeminent in your thoughts, in your thoughts, what you focus on with your mind, what you're feasting on with your mind, are, are, you, are you someone who is, you know, like Psalm 19 describes, like Psalm 119 describes, are you someone who is just feasting on the Word of God, saturated with the Word of God because, because the Lord is preeminent in your thinking? You want to know Him. You want to know Him. You want to hear Him. But then our Lord does something they didn't ask for, which is the foremost, greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But then our Lord took it a step further. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. And Jesus says on these two commandments, every other part of the Word of God hinges, it hangs. It relies on it. This is required to obey any command God has ever given you. How do the two connect? Well, if you love God with all that you are, then you are committed to seeing people the way God would have you see people. And to respond to people in the way that God would have you respond to people. That is to say, you cannot divorce your love for God from your willingness to hear Him, heed Him, obey Him when it comes to His image bearers. You can't love God and not love people. You can't love God and then not love His image bearers. Love for God is never divorced from love for people, ever. In fact, our living in the realm of relationships tests and testifies to what our love for God really is. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor is the one who does not love his brother. You say you know the Lord, you say you're a child of God, but you don't love your brother? 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You claim this tremendous love for one whom you've never seen. It's a love explained by faith, by regeneration, by the faith that God grants. You say you love God whom you cannot see, your brother's standing right in front of you. And the God whom you say you love has given you commands regarding how to regard and respond to this brother. Now, if you can't obey God by the way you respond to this brother standing right in front of you, your claims to love God are false. You're a liar. Verse 21, 1 John 4, And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You tell me you love the Lord. I want to ask you, how are you treating people? How are you treating your wife or your husband? How are you treating your children? How are you treating your brethren in this church? How are you treating the people you work for? How are you treating the people who work for you? This is so important. I'm not talking about treating them in a way that's somehow informed by your conscience. Rather, I'm talking about your conscience being informed by Scripture. Are you dealing with them according to the Scriptures? And then the Scriptures carrying the day, bearing the weight in the realm of your conscience so that now you're relating to people based on what God has revealed. The God whom you're to love with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. The God whom you're to love with all that you are has told you how to love your neighbor. Are you loving God with all that you are when you're not loving your neighbor as yourself? 1 John 4.12 says, No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. 1 John 3.17 reminds us that this love we're talking about toward people is very practical in nature. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? I mean, when it's the time to help your brother, when the opportunity is there to help him and you don't care, where is the love of God in that? Now, you know this, dear ones. Can you say today, based only on your performance, that you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? What's the answer? What's the answer? Didn't Jesus have to die for that? Isn't this amazing? The love of God has answered for our lack of love for God. The love of God has answered for our lack of love for God. Jesus died loving us for our lack of loving Him and paid for our violation of the greatest commandment. And yet as believers, we strive for this. This is the goal. This is what we pursue. And not perfectly and forever on this side of glorification, but we can live this for the moments in which we're depending on the Lord and submitted to the Spirit. We can know what it is, not in perfection, but to express real love for God that encompasses our whole person and all of our life and real love for people that speaks of our love for God. That can be on display in the people of God. And so these two verses then become a way for me to evaluate everything I say I'm obeying in the Word of God because any other command you want to look at if it is missing this love, it's just legalism. Any other command you say you're obeying, if it is lacking 
a life aimed at an all-consuming love for God and hearing God when it comes to His image bearers, if that's not fueling what you're calling obedience, what you're calling obedience is missing the one thing that's vital for it to be obedience. This tests us, doesn't it? I mean, this tests us. There you are, sort of at the end of your tether. You feel like your bandwidth has been totally filled up. You're ready to get home and think about nothing. And someone calls you and they want to talk to you about their problems. How does the flesh respond to that? With sighs. What then must we remember in that moment? Do I love the Lord? Do I love my brother? To love my neighbor as myself. I, in sin, will always love me first. In sin. Now will I prefer them? Will I count them to be more important than me? And, as the Word of God teaches, I'm to treat them in the way I would want someone to treat me. Am I listening to you, Lord? Do I love you? Then I must treat them right now when I feel like I've reached the end of my rope in this moment, right here is my opportunity to demonstrate my love for you by responding to them in a way that would honor you and that I would want someone to respond to me. See, this is practical, isn't it? And it gets down to things like seeing your brother in need. Will you help him? Butch announced this morning the difficulty of moving all this stuff in and out for all these services. And he basically said to you, will you help your brother tonight? It's as practical as that, isn't it? Do we love the Lord? Do we care about Ben? Ben, sorry to make you a point in my sermon, but do we care about him? Do we care about the other men? Do we care? I mean, they want to get home too, don't they? Do you love them like you love you? This is testing. Leon Morris said this, he said, what matters can be summed up in one word, love. This does not, of course, mean that all other commandments may be ignored and that all that one must do is love. The commandments of God are serious and must be observed. But Jesus is saying that it is only when we love that we can truly obey them and that without love we do not really understand what the commandments mean. In one way or another, all the commandments are expressions of God's love. Love is the thrust of them all, and it's only as we love that we fulfill them. You hear this sometimes from professing believers. What am I doing wrong? I mean, I'm, I'm doing the do's, I'm avoiding the don'ts, I'm checking the list. You love your wife? Well, she's got a house, doesn't she? And she ate yesterday. Drives a car. I provide. Blah, 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 blah. Really? I mean, is that loving God and loving her? And to love your neighbor is not about who your neighbor is. We're like a lawyer who tried to argue himself out of the implications of these commands. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, The lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. We heard about that in our conference, didn't we? Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? <laughs> His conscience kicks in. 
Well, who am I responsible to do this towards? Certainly not a Gentile, right? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? It's not who is my neighbor, it is are you a neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor to him? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Luke 6.31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. I'm telling you, if you take these two commands into your heart, you will find you have no excuse to mistreat anybody, regardless of how they treat you. Love men in a way that demonstrates the love of God. And what this means is I can look at my life and say, every violation of God's Word in my life is a failure of love. Every sin I commit is a failure of love on my part. Because if I loved God as I should and loved you as I should, I wouldn't do that. So what has just happened in our verses? What has just happened? The unrighteousness of sin, its hatred of God, is on display in that these men are attempting to entrap Jesus. The ungratefulness of sin Sin exists in the face of God's goodness and mercy and loving kindness. This is on display because Jesus has just pointed the Pharisees to the heart of their problem. That's mercy. Why do you distort the law of God to your own destruction? Why have your religious practices become what they are, so much so that I had to cleanse the temple? How did you get here? How is it that you can tithe down to the herbs in your garden but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Why do you hate the perfect law keeper? Who's the divine law giver? Why do you hate me? Why do you seek to destroy me? It's because you don't have the love of God. It's because you don't love God. It's because you don't love your neighbor as yourself. You have no capacity to do that. This is not the only time Jesus has told them this. John 8.35, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know you're Jews. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, 
Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, that is his spiritual offspring, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. If God was your father, you would love me. What's wrong with these men? They don't love God. They don't love the Son of God. They don't love the truth. And they love themselves. They don't love their neighbor as themselves. This is the test in the life of the church, really. Who is genuine in this church? People who love the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. But as we saw in Mark 12, something else has happened. Here are these men setting up the test of tests with the tester of testers, the expert in the law of God. And he comes in his lawlessness, though he's different from them. God has providentially been working in this man's heart. Not with the same antagonism, not with the same attitude, but he, he comes nonetheless doing their bidding to entrap the Son of God with this test. And as he asks for the answer, the divine lawgiver gives the answer. And as he hears the answer, his own heart affirms what he's hearing. This is true, teacher. This is true. And then he hears words from this one he attempted to entrap. And Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. So that at the height of his hatred, we see an astounding, invitation to mercy. Even as man hates God and is ungrateful to God, as he's hating God, the mercy of God is on display pointing these men to their heart problem and offering them entrance into the kingdom of heaven if they will humble themselves and repent and draw the conclusions that are so plain if they'll just acknowledge what's true. Because from this point on, as we'll see next Sunday, they won't even ask Him any more questions. Who is this one? Watch what He does. Watch how He does it. Deal with His wisdom. You can't deal with it. Who is He? As He heals people right in your very sight and raises people from the dead and announces what your condition is and warns you in advance and extends mercy to you. Who is this? Can't you see? So that if you walk away rejecting Him, you are doubly condemned. Because not only have you hated God in His holiness, you've been ungrateful, even as God has loved you and given you opportunity to be forgiven. Somebody listening to me today, your life says you hate God. Your life says it. Your lips may not say it, but your life says it. And maybe you're someone who's tried to be a good law keeper. I mean, you've got your rules and you have a high view of yourself and highly disciplined and you do all the right things and avoid all the wrong things. You've got your checklist you're going through, but you know what is glaringly absent and you have to know it if you'll be honest, is love for God that transforms the way you see people and the way you deal with people. 
And here's the Lord putting you in this room one more time to hear if you'll turn from your sins and trust in Christ, you too can be saved, forgiven of all your sins and transformed so that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, what will you do with that goodness from God? Will you prove not only to be unholy, will you prove to be ungrateful? Or will you turn and receive God's kindness to you and His love for you in His Son? We long to see you saved. Amen, church? We long to see you saved. And may God's people, may we be grateful that Jesus died for our lack of love, that His love answered for our lack of love. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for Your kindness to us in Your Son. Thank You that You've given us now hearts that do love You and do love people. And wherever we're failing to live that out, continue, Lord, to bring these two commands to our minds and to see that they are necessary for everything else that You've commanded. Absent love, there is no obedience. And so may we be an obedient people as we walk in Your love toward each other and toward this lost and dying world. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.